Alright, so, um, can you tell me something I really didn't need to know? Hey, Mom, tell me something I didn't need to know. So how about let's learn something we really don't need to know. Alright, we're recording again. Hi, ladies. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. Good. Lynn? I am very, very good. You look amazing today. Thank you. You're welcome. You are welcome. Anna was really nice and brought pastries from the bakery today. What? And tiramisu. Yeah. You better save all of this up for when I'm there, dude. We, we, we will, okay. Every leftover we will save for six weeks until she's here. <laughs> you have to eat it. <laughs> oh, God. No, thank you. Not even if you freeze it. <laughs> yeah, she was really nice and stopped at the bakery. She just had an urge to stop at the bakery. That was super nice of her. I'd had a really fantastic morning, so I felt the need to share yes, my happiness on. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hannah, why did you have a fantastic morning? <sighs> because yesterday I got in my car. Now, if you recall, I recently put a lot of money into getting my car fixed. Yesterday I got in my car and started my engine. And my check engine light came on again. It was gone. The engine was gone. That's why she had to check it. Now, after you've put almost $6,000 worth of repairs into your car a week earlier, the last thing you really want to do is see that check engine light come on. I was a little stressed. Just called the dealership and they said, bring it in first thing in the morning. Now, that means they open at 7. They're an hour away. This kind of sucks. But I took it in. And it was something that was very, very easily fixed and didn't cost me a dime. And actually, it did make sense when you explained it to yes. me. Yes. It did make sense. It made perfect sense. So, the fact that after last week's thousands of dollars, today's was... A freebie. <laughs> cost me nothing. Took them like an hour to fix. And I was on my way. I was happy girl. That is a good story. Mm. Yeah. It is. They did. I appreciate that I have a, I have a service advisor or a service uh, supervisor that at that dealership that takes very very good care of me and doesn't treat me like I'm a stupid female. Awesome. So to anybody who's listening, welcome to tell me something I didn't need to know. Now you've heard lots of things you probably didn't need to know. I think they need to know our names though. But, I'm uh, Sandra. I was gonna go there, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome. Well, we've established that she's Lynn and I'm Hannah. That's right, which leaves me. I have to be married today. I'll try to do a good job. Thank you. I'm Mary Swartz. I'm Mary Swartz. I'm Here's Hannah Green. Mary. What? You're Mar Mary Mary. I have the hiccups. <laughs> Stop drinking. <laughs> That's no fun. I know. You're That's right. Just I, can't, I can't believe those words came out of my mouth. What are you drinking today, Lynn? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Us too. I have Mexican. I have Mexican cinnamon coffee today. Thank you. It's fantastic. I have Kona coffee. After your story you did last week, I thought I'd do some Kona coffee. Well, I don't have poop coffee, so I just have my regular Starbucks. That's okay. In a big cup. Hey, that's that is very okay. All right. Word of the week. Ooh, chili ad. Chili ad. Chili ad. I have to tell you, I feel like I've heard this word. C-H-I-L-I-A-D. Chili ad. 
I visualize a small critter, a tiny little shelled critter or not shelled critter. Yeah. I think it's some sort of like an, an insect. I think she's right. You think so? Yes. Okay. You're both way, 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 way. Like, you're not even in the same dimension at this point in time. Oh. Oh. <laughs> It is a thousand things. Uh, oh, no, wait, I know. I know what it is. Okay. It's a commercial for ice cream. It's a chili ad. Oh! <laughs> or Eskimo. See, I went the same. I was like, chili ad. It's, it's an it's, ad for Eskimos. Ad. <laughs> yeah, for, for Eskimos or living in Alaska or something. Hmm. It is a thousand things or a thousand years. Oh, chili ad. Hmm. I feel a like she. But it's for a thousand years. Yeah. It, it's very broad, like, I will, however, broad. say that I do think that there is some sort of, like, hard-shelled insect that sounds similar. Yes, there be is. Because as soon as Lynn said it, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right. Yes. All right. <clears throat> what do you got, Hannah? Slumgullion. Ooh. I feel like either I have heard this word or you've done this. It is a very familiar word. You're right. Maybe I have done it. She maybe I forgot. It maybe I've forgotten to move to mark it off. If I have, I'll just tell you right now. It's beef stew. No. no let me guess. Wait, 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 wait. Let's break this down and figure it out, Lynn. <laughs> no, let me give you wait, a different. No. Let's break it down and figure it out. Let me give you a different one. <laughs> Ready? Right. Ar Arcanum. Arcanum. It's old something. <laughs> That's what I was thinking because archaic, but yeah. arc, arc isn't always old. It's an old mineral or old, old uh, element. You are incorrect. You're nowhere. You aren't even on the same planet. Hmm. Arcanum has to do <coughs> with uh, the Roman aqueducts and the curves on them, I think. Okay. <laughs> arcanium is okay so back Ar arcanum not okay. arcanium arcanum thank you for that correction that has to do with um the 1980s disco phase it was a dance move <laughs> i think it has to do with dentists because they numb your mouth arcanum so it's an old dentist <laughs> oh jesus <laughs> who does who, who operates on your mouth with roller skates yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. While listening to disco music. On the aqueduct in Rome. <laughs> With the big strobe light over. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Tell us the truth. Bring us down. Arcanum is a mystery. See, we solved it. We did. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, Lynn. All right. And I have a sentence if you need one. We laid a lot of sentences. Well, I hope it's better than the last one with her e-jest. Oh, dear God, yeah. yeah. Okay. And if you know this word, you still get the sentence first. So don't don't tell me if you know it until okay. you've heard the, the sentence is the best. Zaftig. What? Zaftig. Zaftig? Zaftig. Use it in a sentence. Is that a bug machine? Oh. <laughs> Close. The lady in the painting is zaftig. She's zaftig. She's just my touch. She's zaftig. She scares me a little. 
I think my ears are bleeding. She was singing again. Beastie Boys song. I love her singing. She sings not well like I do. I love that. (laughs) And she's not afraid to show it and be proud of it. I couldn't help it though because it sounds like crafty. She's crafty. She's just my type. It's Beastie Boys. Okay. And if you uh, love the Beastie Boys, I'm sorry about that if I just ruined it for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, she's zapped Bald. She's bald. Hannah? Come on, Hannah. She naked? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say rich. Oh, she's rich and bald? I didn't say anything about balls. It could be any of those, but they, they none of those things have anything to do with the meaning of the word. It is a woman with a rounded, curvaceous figure. It Ooh. is uh, Yiddish from 1930, came from German, which is saftig, oh. which means juicy, which I found hilarious. Juicy. Yeah, I've not heard too many women called juicy lately. Lynn, this is where you start singing about big butts. I like big butts. <laughs> by Colin and Donna Craig Brown in New Zealand. Doug was photographed wearing various hats, getting rides on wagons, and he did a bunch of other fun stuff. Now Doug the Spud Stud was named the world's largest potato and he weighed in at 17.2 pounds. The Browns submitted their pride and joy Doug to the Guinness Book of World Records, going for the world record of the largest potato ever. Mary? Um, Yes? I think someone ate him. No, he's not been eaten yet. He's still around. He's still around. He has quite an interesting life. But unfortunately, the Guinness people weren't just going to be fried on this one. They wanted a DNA test. They wanted to verify that Doug was indeed a potato before they handed over the title. And unfortunately, Colin and Donna found that their dreams were matched with the test results. 
Dog is actually a gourd, according to the DNA test results, which disqualifies him from the world's largest potato title. Now, I'm not sure where they're keeping Doug at this point in time, but he does... I actually know the answer to this. He still does reside with them. They keep him in their freezer. They do converse with him pretty much daily. Their grandchildren like to open the freezer and talk to him. The grandchildren come to visit him. Yep. And now Doug has the official title of the world's largest not a potato. What but is, is he the world's largest gourd then? What no, is, because no, you, no, have to, you have to file for a whole separate thing. and No, he is not the world's largest gourd. Yeah. That but I found this to be a very sweet story. Well, I have a tidbit for us as well. Sweet. Sweet. Sweet potato. Sweet potato. Potato, potato. Sweet potato. A man in China bought three jars of snake wine <gasps> for his chronically ill son. Now, over in China and a lot of other Asian countries, uh, people believe that snake wine holds medicinal capabilities. Okay? Do you want to explain how they do snake wine? You can go ahead. They take a snake and they put it in a bottle, and I don't know, like, all the specifics, but they put the wine in there, and then the jar and the sits. And, and the snake is alive when they put it in. Right. But then they sit the jar and they let it like ferment or whatever you want to call it for a very long period of time, months, up to a year before they even open it. So this jar was like months fermenting. Now this man, after he bought the wine, actually let it sit untouched for three years in order to build the medicinal purposes. So he finally opens the jars so bizarre this whole story is so freaking bizarre he finally opens the jars of snake wine to give them to his son only when he opened them all three of the snakes came back to life and one of the snakes bit him an angry drunk i guess oh he was pretty pissed it's a venomous snake yeah yeah they're not like garden snakes no now, luckily, he was immediately rushed to the local hospital. He was treated, and he will actually survive this. Now, how did the snake survive? Some experts have said that snakes can enter a sort of hibernation when submerged in liquid. And some snakes actually like water, so keep that in mind. They can remain in that state for a couple of years. And depending on how the lid is sealed onto the jar, if enough air is able to get in through the jar, it can actually extend the hibernation period yeah. for the snake. Yeah. It's Why didn't he just drink the snake wine? Because if it's the cure-all, you know, if the snake bites you, then just drink the wine. I don't think he was capable of making any decisions after being bit by the venomous snake. Yeah. It, it's such a bizarre story. It's, it's so freaking bizarre. It's like, why do these people do this? People believe a lot of things over there. and Again, he, it's something we didn't need to know. I don't think it's just over there. No, it's not. Oh, no, it's not. It's not. And it's not the first time it's happened either. No, but can There's you imagine? It's a bizarre freaking story. First of all, I'm not going to buy a bottle of wine that has a snake curled up inside of it. No. No. I want full value for my money. <laughs> no. uh, for Christmas, buy Mary's. 
Make you some? No, no. Are you gonna handle the snake? You stuff into the bottle. Are you really gonna stuff a snake into the bottle? Um, my kids yeah. aren't afraid of snakes. We're not getting your kids involved. You don't get to say it's not your gift. You don't get to make your own gift. Oh Jesus! I am not afraid of snakes. So there you go. Linda and I are gonna make you a bottle of snake wine for Christmas. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah, no, we not. are. No. Wow. All right. No, I refuse your gifts from that. No. Mary, have you a story for us? I do. I do. Are you ready? Ladies, ready for a story? I am ready. All right. This is called Naughty Rainbows Go to Prism. What is it with you two and the puns lately? <laughs> I don't know. What? Because where else are you going to send a naughty rainbow to? If a rainbow's been misbehaving, what do you do with it? Turn it into a rock star. Because that sounds like the name of a rock star. <laughs> Naughty um, rainbow. Oh. All right. Ooh, I want to be a naughty rainbow for Halloween. All right. Or it's a stripper. I'm not sure which. It's <laughs> your stripper name, Naughty Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We could I... go with that. Yes. Hana. Hana. If this podcast doesn't work out, that's where we look for Hana. All right. Leprechauns, rainbows, pots of gold. Fun to think about. Nice to dream about. As a child, were you a believer? Did you try to chase down a rainbow thinking you could actually find a pot of gold at the end? I think about it now and I have decided that adults are slightly sadistic people, just in larger bodies. And as you will soon find out, my dear listeners, in this story, there may have been a pot of gold, but it wasn't at the end of any rainbow, nor did a leprechaun bring the finders any luck. So let's zoom back to August 31st of 1934, which just happened to be a Friday which has nothing to do with the story, but I thought I'd tell you. And let's see what's going on at 132 South Eden Street in Baltimore, Maryland. It's the height of the Depression. Things are pretty harsh everywhere. And since we've gone back, we find ourselves in the basement of this long neglected three-story house where we find two teenage boys, 14-year-old Theodore Jones and 15-year-old Henry Grove. The two lads has just decided to start a new boys club that they called the Rinky Dinky Doos. Now, Doos in the club were set at five cents each. I would just like to say, I have no interest in seeing a stripper by the name of Rinky Dinky Doo. That's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be my name, Hannah. <laughs> Don't make fun of Lynn. Hold on, wait. We've got Naughty Rainbow and Rinky Dinky Doo. What's Mary's name? Let's think about that for a while. So dues in the club are set at five cents each, not that either boy had even a single penny to contribute themselves. The boys were both being raised by single mothers who had absolutely no money to spare for something so silly and trivial as club dues. You might wonder what the boys are doing in this basement. Do they belong there or are they up to no good? Well, Theodore actually lived in the building with his mother, but it wasn't really a house. That is actually far too nice a word for the building. It was actually a tenement, or as Google tells us, it's a type of building shared by multiple families, typically with a shared entrance stairway access, or an apartment building that has boarded up windows, leaky pump plumbing, and barely working heat. Being August 31st, it's a pretty warm day out there, and it's far too warm to be playing outside. And basements, as we all know, are kind of much cooler places to hang out in. So in a far corner of the cellar of this building, the boys start digging a hole in the dirt floor. They're going to hide a cigar box 
that they intended to use to hold any dues that they had collected for the club. <clears throat> now maybe there were secret club papers in the cigar box or maybe because they were teenage boys. Maybe they had some cards in there. Maybe a couple marbles. Useless key? Secret note? We'll never know because the reporter from the Baltimore Sun newspaper who reported the story originally, he didn't think that that fact was even important. He didn't know the important questions to ask. The two tools that the boys were using weren't really meant for digging. All they really had was an axe, a corn knife, and a flashlight. So the boys chose a spot near one of the brick walls and they started digging. They quickly hit a layer of oyster shell and then when they hit about one foot deep, the axe came down and something shiny popped out of the ground. Theodore said, look, there's a metal. Henry took a quick look and said, you're crazy. That's a $20 gold coin. And for two boys that were living in poverty during the Great Depression, this was like hitting the jackpot. No, not, not like. This actually was the jackpot, the mother load, the treasure of all treasures, the pot at the end of the rainbow. That's because $20 back in 1934 would be like finding $423 today. Wow. So the two boys wondered if there were more gold below their feet. They quickly dropped to their knees and they continued to dig until they covered an old boot that had actually been split lengthwise and been wrapped around what appeared to be an old copper pot. As Theodore later told this unwise reporter, the boys were digging like mad with everything they had, hands, knees, elbows, everything. The boys pulled a pot out of the ground and they placed it upon an old mattress that had been laying on the dirt floor of the cellar. Theodore smashed the old pot open and the unbelievable occurred. Thousands of gold coins poured out of that old copper vessel. With the gold coins scattered all around them, the boys sat on the dirt floor and started to dream about all the wealth they now had, what they would be able to do, where they would go. I can only imagine the conversation between the two boys who had lived hand to mouth their entire lives. They would go to the beach. No, no, we're going to go far away. We're going to go much farther away. We could go to the moon. They, we would build the biggest house ever. We would have so much food with all of our favorite foods, of course. So much food we can't eat at all. We could have all the toys in the world. We could buy our mother's new dresses. We could buy them new washing machines. Why we have so much money, we could buy a father if we wanted to. But again, sadly, we'll never know of their hopes and dreams that they might have talked about while sitting on that dirt floor that hot day in August of 1934, surrounded by all those gold coins. Because some reporters don't know how to ask those important questions. So divided up, the boys each took half of the larger nomination coins. But after that, there were so many $1 gold coins that they really they couldn't even bother to count them. They simply split it up by the handful. Now Theodore lived upstairs, so getting his share of the coins home, not a big deal. But Henry lived about a block and a half away, and he was forced to take his shoes off, fill his shoes, fill all of his pockets with the gold, and he had to walk home barefoot. But kind of like the Marines, no coin was left behind. Their original plan was to take all the coins to the local bank and just cash them in. But Henry's brother-in-law, Paul, he knew a little bit of information and he said, dudes, not a good idea. The United States had just come off of the gold standard and required that all gold currency had be turned over to the government by May 1st of the previous year. So they were actually 16 months beyond that deadline. And anyone who possessed more than $100 worth of gold coins could be subject to a maximum fine 
of $10,000 and they could go to prison. Now Paul knew that there was an exception to the gold recall. It allowed for gold coins that had a recognized special value to collectors of rare and unusual coins. Now these coins were clearly old and Paul thought that could be significant. They might have more than a face value that a bank would give them. So he said, let's go to the police and talk to them and the boys agreed. So let's picture this, listeners. Henry, Theodore, and Paul walked over to the Eastern Police Station a few blocks away, and they approached Sergeant Harry Hill. And they informed him that they had over $7,000 in gold coins that they wanted to turn over. They had put all the coins in leather bags and cigar boxes. Now, Sergeant Hill probably thought that they were crazy, but obviously that idea couldn't have lasted too long because Sergeant Hill, along with a couple of other officers, ended up counting up the loot, and they placed $7,882 worth of gold coins in a safe. Holy crap! But it turns out that the boys had been holding out because they didn't really know if they could trust the police. And my dear listeners, what you haven't been told is that the boys had gone back to the basement and they had found another pot filled with coins. Gold coins stamped with $1, $2.50, $5, $10, and the officers must have been in shock when the boys strolled back in a couple of hours later with an additional $3,542 in coins. So now they have a total of $11,424 in gold coins sitting in the safe of the police station. So within a couple days, the boys are instant celebrities. When they're asked by the press what they intended to do with their sudden wealth, Henry said he wanted to purchase a house for his mother. He wanted to open a bank account, and then he was just going to give her the rest. Theodore planned to purchase a washing machine. He was going to get himself a new suit. And like Henry, Theodore said that his mom could have whatever was left over. It's kind of amazing, these two teenage boys who actually appreciated and acknowledged that their mothers had gone without for them. Imagine a teenager, any teenager today, putting their mothers first. Dear listeners, I think we're going to have to look far and wide for that. But the real question remained, who actually owned the, the coins? Was it the property of the boys? Was it the owners of the land? The owner of the house? Or did it belong to another resident of the house, or maybe someone who had lived there many years prior? Longtime residents of the town told reporters that the neighborhood had once been the home of seafarers and ship captains and that perhaps the gold coins represented the handiwork of someone who had come off the sea. Or maybe pirates. And, as expected, our unknowledgeable reporter puts his two cents in, saying, quote, Scores of claimants are expected to appear, and before the fight is over, the two youths who found it may have nothing left but the memory and the thrill which comes to owning, if only for a few minutes, thousands of bright gold coins. End of quote. Now, there's only really one solution. This is a job for Superman. Superman's not available, though. So the ownership of the gold had to be decided by the next best thing, a court of law. So the boys needed to get a lawyer. And as you know, they don't come cheap. They hired attorney Henry O. Levin in exchange for one-third of anything that the court awarded them. So the court said there was a 90-day window. They gave it for any party who wanted to come forward and stake their claim for the pot of gold. Now trust me when I say that the claimants were not in short supply. A number of them were almost immediately out of the running because their claims were either very fraudulent or way too far-fetched. And at the end of the 90-day period, there were 10 parties who had joined in the suit, but the judge quickly whittled that down to four. Well, my listeners, here's a, here's a quick summary of who was involved. First and most obvious are the two boys, Henry Grobe and Theodore Jones. 
Second were the landowners, two elderly sisters named Elizabeth French and Mary Pillar Boyd Findlay. Oddly, they only owned the land and they didn't own the house that was built on it. The building was owned by a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Collis who paid a monthly land rent. Now he wasn't part of the suit because he had only recently purchased the house after the previous owners had passed away. So next to claim it was the family of Henry Shevin who had occupied one of the six apartments in the building. He had died just 12 days prior to the discovery of the gold. Harry had been a very successful jeweler until he went off of his rocker in 1915 and ended up in a sanitarium. Supposedly, he had lost everything at the time, but there were rumors that he had a large fortune, fortune stashed away somewhere. And his family just knew, they just knew that Harry had buried those coins in the basement. Now the last party were descendants of the late Andrew Salisbury. He was an incredibly wealthy man who had owned the home at 132 South Eden from June 1865 until his sudden death on November 28th of 1873. He was known by everyone local to have handed out gold coins as gifts to both staff and family. So there you have it. The four parties who were holding their hands out waiting that for them to be filled with gold and only one party had actually done any work for it. Now before I continue I must admit that I always assumed that anything found on land that I owned would be my property but it turns out that this is not always the case. There are what is known as treasure trove laws which actually vary depending on where you live. They can vary by state or by country. And in most cases, if someone else finds a stash of valuables on your land and you can't prove that they were trespassing or that you own them, they get to keep them. So it's left to Judge Eugene O'Donn to figure this one out. And he quickly ruled out the family of Harry. It's clear that the pot of gold had been buried many years prior because the newest coin was dated 1856. And since Harry was living in Russian, Russia until 1908 and the family had no proof he really had a stash of gold, they were dropped from the case. In February of 1935, Judge O'Donnell handed down his decision on the Salisbury claim. He felt that it was certainly plausible that Andrew Salisbury had buried the gold. After all, he was a wealthy man. He lived in the house around the time that the coins may have been hidden, but the family could offer no actual proof of ownership. Their argument was totally circumstantial, so the judge kicked them out too. So now it's down to either of the two sisters or the two boys being awarded ownership. Since Marilyn actually did not have a treasure trove law at the time, the judge had to make his decision based on previous court rulings. And this really boiled down to one question. Had the boys trespassed or not? Now there had been a door in the basement sealed off the room in which the gold was found. But there was very conflicting testimony as to whether the door had been locked when the boys made their discovery. And on February 16th of 1935, the judge issued his ruling. He awarded the entire contents of the copper pot of some $11,427 face value to the infant defendants as finders of the treasure trove. In other words, finders keepers, losers weepers. And unsurprisingly, appeals to the ruling were immediately filed by the two women and the descendants of Andrew Salisbury. But all parties agreed that in the meantime the gold could be sold. So on May 2nd, and I want you to keep this in mind, of 1935. 3,558 gold coins were sold at an auction that was held at the Lord Baltimore Hotel. Now various estimates had valued the hoard at between $25,000 and $30,000. The sale 
fell a little short of the predictions, bringing in just under $20,000 in total, which if you sold them today would be $414,000. Nothing to sneeze at. So two months later, the Maryland Court of Appeals issued a statement saying that O'Dunn's opinion would not be overturned and the money belonged to the boys. But there was a catch. The judge had specified in his original decision that neither boy would get a single cent until each turned 21 years of age. Now for two families on public assistance, that would just mean more years of struggling. And after more than three years of courtroom battles, the legal fight was finally over. Extremely sadly, Henry Grobe, he never saw a dime. In 1937, he was working for the Panzer Packing Company as a mayonnaise worker, earning $16 a week. He went swimming in the harbor and he developed pneumonia. He died three days later at South Baltimore General Hospital. Henry's mom, Ruth, she was awarded his share of the fortune. And after deducting court fees, attorney fees, inheritance tax, and his funeral, she was given a check for $3,601.70 on April 11th of 1938. Which comes out to how much this... I didn't figure that part out. Hold on. I didn't figure that out. But about $600,000, I would guess. 60000 well, 60000 no, 60, 20, I thought you said... Yeah, six, it would be about $60,000 okay. today. So if it's $1938... What? $3,601. $3,601. $3,601. $72,458.25. Okay. Keep that in mind, okay? Yes. As for Theodore Jones, he married in 1938 using his birth name of Theodore Crick Signs. He received a check for approximately five thousand dollars in May of nineteen thirty-nine. He was nineteen years old. I thought hey, he couldn't get it till he was twenty-one. If you recall, I mentioned that the boys couldn't receive the money until they turned twenty-one, but it turned out that Theodore had always lied about his age and added on two years. Oh, so even though he was nineteen, the court thought he was twenty-one. Now Theodore spent his career as a shipyard mechanic at Bethlehem Steel. By the way, that comes out to about a little over $102,000. Keep that in mind. Okay. He passed away in August of 1977 at the age of 57 years and three months, and that was his real age. Now, dear listeners, as we come to the end of our story, I want to remind you that the coins were dated from the 1830s, the 1840s, and the 1850s. I personally think the boys got leprechaun by the grown-ups again, because today, today those coins would be worth over $10 billion dollars wow yeah that's pretty crazy yep what did we say they sold for them at auction 20 20,000 I, I thought it was a little more than that nope 20,000 well it's actually just under 20,000 I just rounded it up to 20,000 yeah 408,000 dollars yeah they were they would be worth over 10 million dollars today yeah they definitely got ripped off that's some bullshit yeah wow Still, for people who didn't have anything, that must have felt like... I can't even imagine. I mean, them sitting in the basement looking at all these coins. And being 14 and 15 years old. Right. That just, yeah. I mean, the thoughts that must have gone through their heads, like they would just be fantastically rich for the rest of their lives. Yeah, because, you know, here's the thing. I've never in person held in my hand an actual gold coin. So even at my age of 45... If I was outside in your garden and we'd I dug up a... Pee, we'd probably pee ourselves. I was just going to say, I, I'd probably fall over and sit in your garden on my butt 
and laugh until I cried and pee myself. Probably. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. My thing on this is the judge who did it. His first ruling of the boys get it, great. His second ruling, though, seems like he didn't get where they, they were at in their life. But Make him wait till they're 21 when they are so poor. You're talking about the 1930s, though. I mean. But yeah, they could have used it for education and things like that. They absolutely could have. One of them died. So to me, I'm like, that judge, I, I, I was, I don't like that. I think that you have to look at their circumstances and say, you know, put a guardian over it or something. You know what I mean? But the world was a it. different place back then, too. The world was a really different place, and they didn't really have any criteria for the judge to follow. So he probably right. looked at previous cases and said, you know, how was this handled? And, and you know, he made his best judgments. And... He really didn't have a lot to say about it after the case, so right. we'll never really know. My guess is he's a male, and he looked yes. at it and said, oh, obviously. oh, there's no man in that family. It's a woman, so I can't give her the money. He might have. He might have. <laughs> Anything's possible. He might have. Yeah, I just don't like that ruling. I don't like it. Okay, well, you go ahead and put your protest in, and we'll back you up. Okay. <laughs> Good story, though, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Good story. I like that. It was. It was. Well, thank you to everyone who spent some time with us. We hope that you're still here. <laughs> Appreciate that, Hannah. We hope that you, well, we were singing at the beginning, so, you know. No, we weren't singing. Some of us were. <laughs> um, we hope that you enjoyed Mary's story as much as we did. It was a really good story. Very well done. Thank you. And remember, all that glitters is not gold. Sometimes it's ice. <laughs> and you might fall on it. Mm, true. You can find us on Facebook at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know or at TMSIDNTK at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We're everywhere. If you have suggestions, ideas, comments, if you have found an unexpected treasure and you want to share with yes. your story, we would love to hear about it. If you have a podcast of your own and you would like to cross-advertise, reach out. We're all about supporting each other. We'd love to, to make that work with you. Hell yes. If you enjoyed your short stop with us, please feel free to follow the podcast. Leave us a rating and a review. It takes 60 seconds. It costs you nothing. Um, you know, one of the best ways you can support us beyond leaving us a rating and a review is to tell your friends and, and encourage them to listen. And also, if you have other podcasts that you listen to that are, are little indie podcasts like ours, let us know. We'd love to, you know, take a minute, listen, give them a shout out, and support them. I love discovering new podcasts, and I love sharing them, too. Absolutely. You can find us pretty much everywhere. Um, if you know of a streaming platform we're not on, let us know. We'll work to see what we can do to get there. Ladies, anything else for today? Yeah, if you're going to go look for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, don't forget to look at the rainbow and notice all the beautiful colors in it. Yeah, that's it. So freaking true. So often we do. We look past what's right in front of us. 
Take it to go.